it almost always comes down to the wallet. And the wallet is the motivator. People don't wake up, look in the mirror and say to themselves, you know, I'm going to ruin the planet today. Everyone in this industry that I've met has good intentions when they go out, but then the nuances of the industry just tend to hammer you and beat you down. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building materials. And today, my co-host is Seth Heckman, also of Isaiah Industries. Our goal here at Construction Disruption is to provide timely and forward-looking information regarding the construction world. As part of that, we always look at new innovations as well as trends and practices, building materials, the labor market, leadership, all kinds of topics. Basically, if we come across something that we think is going to be rising to the top in the future of construction, we try to go out and find ourselves an expert to uh, come on the show and talk to us about it. So pleased that today on Construction and Disruption, our special guest is Tim Sims. Tim has a great deal of interest in and knowledge of construction. Over the last 25 years, Tim has done sales for companies such as Builders Alliance, James Hardy, and Nichiha USA. Tim has also been Director of Building Products Intelligence for the New Home Trends Institute, and he is currently self-employed with a variety of projects that he's working on for his consultants in stealth mode, as he says. One of his specializations is go-to-market strategy for building products manufacturers in the prefabricated mass timber and also cladding spaces. And what's more, along with Caroline Albano. He is also co-host of the popular Building Perspectives podcast. Tim, welcome to Construction Disruption. Seth and Todd, thanks for having me. I'm After listening to, to so many episodes, it's exciting to be here with you. And I'm having a little bit of microphone envy. I'm going to have to get some mics like you guys have. It's really cool setup you have, and I'm really grateful to be here. Well, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, I find I can kind of hide behind it or something like that. (laughs) So if I don't shave, no one knows. That's good. Well, thank you again, Tim, for joining us today. I really could sense that our conversation, because of your breadth of experience in this space, our conversation is going to cover a lot of topics. I just kind of want to start and ask, what do you really like about the construction industry, or how did you end up in this field? I know some of us were kind of born into it, and others just landed there, but uh, curious to know a little bit about your own history. Yeah. uh, When I was growing up, my dad worked with a bunch of remodel companies and and mostly did a bunch of drywall and taping in eastern Washington and western Washington, Pacific Northwest. And I always said I wasn't going to do that. You know, as a young person, sometimes at least I was like, I don't want to do anything my parents are doing. As I got older, I, I kind of actually fell into a couple projects and I realized, oh, okay, I do like this. And uh, it was really cool because then I had even more in common with my dad and and we shared kind of industry things over the years. He's since out of the business, but but that was kind of how I got started. And, and one of my favorite things about the construction industry is the low barrier to entry for folks to learn a trade, to make a good living. There was a calculator. I used to pass around James Hardy because one of the James Hardy things at the time was was only hire people with a college degree, and the cal- the calculator showed 
you know, like, okay, during the time when all my friends were in college as a young person, I did go to college later, but I earned a lot of money during the time they were in college. And then I also didn't have any student debt. And so, uh, and I was having a lot of fun. I could drive by projects and you could point to it, you know, and say, Hey, I worked on that building or look, look, I did that. You can see it from the street, the pro- product I installed on the building. So I, I just kind of love the, the artisanship and the, the pride that comes from that and how quickly young people can get started or anyone at any age can get started in the industry if they're interested in it. You know, that's a great perspective. And I've never really thought of that before in quite those terms. But yes, the the ease of getting involved in in an exciting industry that always has growth opportunities and new things coming along. I know one of the things I love too is uh, out traveling in the middle of nowhere and I suddenly look up and see one of our products installed on a house. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm always telling my wife, I'm like, huh, I don't remember that project. And she's like, you remember all of your projects? And I'm kind of like, well, really, you'd kind of be surprised probably, but no, I don't remember that one. So very interesting. So tell us a little bit about Build Perspectives. I know you're, you do that with Carolina Albano, who you have been associated with for a number of years, but tell us a little bit about what your goals are with your podcast and perhaps a favorite episode that you've really enjoyed. So we originally started recording actually at the behest of Zach and Beth from the um, Smarter Building Materials Marketing Podcast, which is another great pod in the industry like yours. And and they encouraged us to just basically hit record. And they sent us a little document that they used to kind of get started on theirs. And we were at AIA and um, we actually walked by the Rockwool booth. And anyone that's been to the Rockwool booth at AIA, especially because it's such a production, they have that sound deadening tunnel. And so we kind of wanted to see what the sound was like. And we recorded like a little test. Wow, what a difference in the sound. And so we're like, well, why don't we talk about that? And we'll talk about how so many people think AIA and these trade shows are dead and they're going to go away. And so that, that's what started it. And we, we had good, a good rapport, obviously still do. And we both kind of wanted to do the same things. And we wanted to get content out there. Most of it was around originally about we actually called it facades cast in the beginning because it was going to be all about cladding and kind of the ins and outs of the industry but it turned into more kind of existential information about the industry and my dad had always used this saying that there are four things you can never have too much of faith hope love and perspective and i always thought perspective was really interesting so we uh i talk about that my whole life with the kids, you know, you, you can't have too much perspective, you know, and try and understand other people. And so we thought, well, how does that translate into the industry? We got to talking about it and sharing different people's different stories and, and their linear or nonlinear paths to construction as a career, try and open up people's eyes to kind of what the possibilities are for careers in the industry, uh, different ways to look at our own careers if we're already in the industry. And then maybe other opportunities that may be coming up in terms of technology or self-development or anything like that. So it's all kind of about, it, there's a book Chris Voss wrote that says it's, it's called Never Split the Difference. And it's a really a negotiating book, but he talks a lot about tactical empathy in that book and trying to really understand the other person from an objective standpoint. So that's really what we endeavor to do and then share what we find. And hopefully, you know, people find it interesting. It seems like so far folks have, it's a lot of fun. Wow, I, I love that, you know, trying to understand the other person and, and how 
life-changing that is and how world-changing that could be if everyone did that. But uh, faith, love, hope, and perspective. I've never heard that before. I love it. Good stuff. Tell your dad's a wise man. I'm kind of curious, kind of switching into the consulting you're doing and the work you're doing for your clients now, what are some of the projects or can you share with us some of the things you've done for your clients and what that typically looks like and how you bring value to them and how you help change the industry? Yeah, I find that the consulting field, a lot of times, especially in the building product manufacturer segment or customer persona, that that a lot of times they're purchasing research or getting consulting to sort of validate something they already believe. And so then you're kind of crowdsourcing this information to, to make informed decisions. And I love that. I love the research and the market sizing and, and the sort of dead aggregation that, that we, you know, I can totally nerd out on that stuff. But on the other hand, it's all about what people want and need for their business. And everyone's trying to grow their business. They have, there's all these different challenges. There are even more challenges probably than ever in the industry right now. When you add the supply chain value chain layers on there, wherever you are in the stream of things. So everyone's facing all these things and, and there is a lot of research out there, but what I'm being asked to do most right now is open doors and make connections. So there's this illustration in my mind at all times, my optics on the industry and anything business is adoption curve alignment. And so a lot of times folks, for instance, want to go after the biggest builder or the biggest GCs or the biggest architecture firms or something like that, because they're easy to find and it's a big dollar amount, but it's not always in alignment with the products and services. So what we try to do is in my mind, at least when I'm having these conversations is, okay, where are these products? Where is the company? Where are you as the leader of the company as a mindset on the adoption curve. Okay. And then from a vertical standpoint is finding, okay, here are the targets, here are the segments, here are the targets, and here's where you want to position for growth. And so uh, the biggest part of that conversation is you could, as a deliverable to the client, you could say, okay, here's the report. You know, a lot of times consulting is about delivering the report and saying, you know, let us know if you have any questions, but the next step is really to kind of open doors, roll up the sleeves get the right people in the right room working on the right solutions for the right problems. And that's kind of the the framework that the conversations end up in. And so that's what I find myself doing is, is making those connections so that those conversations can keep going. And, and that it's so important right now because in an effort to aggregate and streamline the industry, even segments of the industry that are trying to do that overtly, are actually adding more layers and more complexity. So now you have have multiple layers in the prefab world where it's actually supposed to make things easier. In a lot of cases, it's making things more difficult. And it's not the technology, it's the conversations, it's the the IP protectionism and so forth. And so we're trying to knock down those barriers under the framework often of NDAs to cooperate more and get get the right information in the right people's hands, develop the right products that people actually want. I can't tell you how many times we work on products in this industry where there's been no product market fit research or voice of customer work. But on the other hand, there's a lot of quality work in that regard. Just trying to get that information and that framework in the right people's hands and then help them make decisions on that so that 
they can deploy or make a decision not to deploy something. I love uh, that idea that, you know, hey, I'm going to bring people together and bring them together in the right ways to solve the right problems. And uh, we've talked about that before with other guests also, how much more we can accomplish when we work together rather than all siloed or silent and competitive and all that type of stuff. So great concept. Very good. I like that silent, siloed, and competitive. I'm going <laughs> to remember that. I was telling Prefab oh, as a, a volumetric modular um, manufacturer startup. That's a lot of words altogether, isn't it? Anyhow, we were talking about different things in the prefab world, and one of the big bugaboos with prefab is is the building envelope and then the the drywall and fire protection. And so, it, the, you know, how do we get rid of the boxes, bags, and buckets? So I try to like group things like that so I can remember with the concepts. (laughs) I love it. Boxes, bags, and buckets. Good stuff. So one of the things I've seen you write about recently, and I I think you had also talked with our mutual friend Mark Mitchell about this a little bit, was the idea of build-for-rent construction, developers building single-family homes with the main purpose specifically to be rental properties. Kind of curious. I'd love to hear about that. I, I don't see that happening in our area here in the Midwest yet but would love to see where you're happening and where you're seeing that happening and how you feel it's going to grow. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting category because it's it's like nothing the US has seen at scale like a lot of other countries have had and and I have to say a shout out to Mark Mitchell. Yes. And I'm glad he's feeling better and also great friend. He's another one who encouraged us to do a podcast and just like he says start recording, start somewhere. And so that's what we did. And he's been a great and positive influence on Carolina and I, and of course, thousands of other people. So when we think of the build for rent space, there are some interesting constraints on for sale product and multifamily that uh, that build for rent purpose built single family home community doesn't face. And so for instance, with multifamily a lot of times you're dealing with syndicators that raise money for a down the 20 or 30% down and then they get a commercial loan for the rest of the project construction loan with um, for sale construction is it's also different in how the capital is stacked and then you have the valuations are different so uh, and time horizon so with multifamily their time horizon is like a typically a three to five year business plan before disposition. So they sell the sell it and flip it in three to five years on average. And then single family, of course, that's for sale. That's sold. There's a one year warranty. If it's longer, it's usually a third party that carries the warranty. So the builder's kind of out of the picture. They also depend a lot on the local cap rate for multifamily or comps for valuations on single family. When you look at single family bill for rent, they have typically those developers, they have a much longer time horizon. It's seven to 10 years, if not longer. So they don't really want, and, and oftentimes they're funding it fully themselves. So it's, it's a giant fund, uh, often a rolling fund or some uh, institutional wealth strategy to get into the space. And so they'll buy or build these communities to spec just for build for rent. But because their time horizon is so long, they have to look at kind of a different strategy when it comes to materiality and durability and uh, even climate risk. Cause there are a lot, there's a lot of pressure when you're dealing with so many investors into the fund to really execute on an ESG a sustainability strategy. So it's a different mindset with that product. 
that when they're coming in, they don't have to deal with typically uh, when they're thinking of valuation of a portfolio, they're dealing with kind of the multifamily metrics, but with single family product. And then also they don't have to worry about appraisals and comps because they're not, you know, these aren't being sold to uh, retail buyers. So they just kind of have a different way of thinking about it. And so what that does is it kind of frees them up to try different technologies. It frees them up to uh, deploy the capital in terms of asset allocation, maybe spread it to some manufacturing like prefab instead of just site built or take more in-house instead of having a fee builder build the properties. So they can look at these things a little differently from the lens really is control uh, of capital, control of the assets and control of, of labor and materials. And when they, when they're building something for rent, it's just a lot easier to do that instead of being a, a project manager. The other thing that's important is when they have really durable products, they're not having to do a, you know, because they, they're not selling the house, the portfolio in three to five years, 10, 15 years. So when they're thinking in that time frame, they don't want to do a capital call to investors in seven to eight years because we have all these maintenance issues. They need to have a good set of reserves and also durable products so that they don't need to do that or even have a conversation with investors except for just their quarterly normal calls until they sell the the portfolio, which is 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So that, that sort of, they're taking the friction out of that whole process. At least that's the goal. Hasn't been easy because them getting out of the ground with houses is just as difficult as a for sale builder or multifamily developer. So that's kind of the highlights of the difference between the three segments and why it's such a, a fascinating one, because you can see easily those developers with how their capital stacked and that they're not relying so much on commercial banks that they can go and deploy 3D printed foundations or first floors. They can uh, use mass timber. They could use panelized or kitchen and bathroom pods. And and they can kind of handle the deployment of when you have to prepay for prefab so far in advance because the banks are so resistant to that. But when you're dealing with a fund, you know, you're just telling the investors that, hey, this is our strategy. This is what we're doing. So those are the biggest differences that I saw. And I know it's a long diatribe, but it's also a big segment. So it kind of deserves a little airtime. No, it's very interesting. And I have a better understanding of it now. Again, haven't seen this happen here in our area, but maybe I just haven't seen it either. One of the questions I was going to ask was, you know, is there any opportunity for smaller developers to be involved in this? But it really sounds like you know, one opportunity would be for a smaller investor to get involved with a company that's doing this. Is that generally correct? So there's a big demand amongst the build for rent institutional money, especially because they're not builders. The big demand is for strategics like uh, fee builders that are going in on the project with them, not necessarily as a JV, but maybe a JV. So there's, there's a lot of flexibility in finding the right fit. Some markets, they might have a builder that's just working for them as a fee builder, and they're just turning these communities over. Uh, in another market, they might do a joint venture because that's the only way they can get the project done. But it's n- it's not sustainable for them to just keep buying homes from for sale builders because they're not built to go through the rigors as a single family rental, uh, like a for sale. You know, the requirement to keep those properties up is different just because it's a, it's not built as a rental. So that's how people can get it now. There, across the country, there's a whole, it's been around for 100 years, it's, it's the renovate to rent segment. 
And that's how some folks get into this space from a, a grassroots level or greenfield level and building a business is they'll buy a house, fix it up, and then rent it out. Okay. As I said, that concept's been around for a long time. But they do that 30 times. Now they have a portfolio. They do that 100, 200, 300 times. They may still be building for sale product, but they have this build for rent portfolio as kind of a war chest. And then they could sell that whole portfolio to one of these bigger companies and then use that money to now go build new construction, build for rent. And we've seen that progress uh, by not only nationals, but the regionals and the publics, um, the smaller builders. So you can literally start with one older home, fix up, lease it up, and then do that a few times. You can sell a portfolio as small as 20 or 30 of these homes, even if they're spread out through a city or a state to one investor and then take that lump and go do something else. It sounds easy. There's a lot of, there are a lot of moving parts to make that happen, but that's how builders could get started. And, and one thing interesting to keep in mind about that is in Memphis, I'll take one example. There's a turnkey operation that does this. They send out these mailers. People probably get them all the time. You guys might get them at your house. Like we'll buy your home. Well, that's either a house flipper or a renovate to rent operator. And in Memphis, there's a renovate to rent operator. I can't tell you who they are, but basically they have their own lumber yard. They have their own pickers and pullers. They have their own prefab. They have their own procurement people, their own totally in-house labor. And they go out and they fix up these homes. They lease them up. They manage the property. They get to a certain amount of time when it's stabilized, decide when if they're going to keep it or flip it. Sometimes they'll flip it to an individual investor or a portfolio, or they'll just add it to their book of business and then flip that later. But that tells me that that lumberyard should know who these people are. They may just seem like a remodeler when they come in, but treat them like they're a big company because if they're not now, they could be in a short period of time. Wow, that's really been eye-opening for me. I've just never thought about those different segments and also about how those different segments would all have different goals and different desires and therefore use different building materials and construction methods. Very, just never thought about this. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, just a few years difference in the whole time all of a sudden changes the perspective completely. So yeah, very interesting. One comment you made was traditional construction loans and the schedule and the the expectations there and how that limits the use of prefab. We've had modular construction offsite kind of construction has come up a lot on the podcast. I'm curious, tell us a little bit more about that and our banks starting to get a little bit more flexible in response to skilled labor shortage and all the other challenges that lead us to thinking more about those alternatives. Yeah, uh, banks aren't that conciliatory to you know changing anything um, with how they lend in and and they frankly they don't have to there has to be another financial instrument and vehicle to cover that so it's either a self-funded you know where basically it's kind of hard though if you have 200 units and you you have to front that money before the it even ever leaves the factory to get to the job site and then it's going to be 90 days before you can stabilize and refi that, or, you know, you need a bridge for about a year. So that's why you see people starting rolling funds to kind of be a bridge loan for the manufacturing. The modular factories haven't really been, uh, that's not been their discipline because they're manufacturers, but they're getting more and more involved in trying to facilitate this because even though a lot of them are sold out right now through this year, they realize that, that pipeline has an, has an endpoint. So they, they need to keep that going. And there are new factories coming on board that are 
also kind of different handled differently. Whereas instead of raising, you know, $50 million or getting a commercial loan for part of that, they're doing a joint venture for the factory capacity with the developer. So there's a lot of different creative things, right? The banks, they have their place. And I don't think that's going to change that much, but it's going to be more private money. You could see like a rolling fund or even DAOs and SPACs are looking at how can we get involved connecting this space with the money, you know? So it's really kind of a fascinating time for finance in the area, but it's still full of not only challenges and qualifying, but it's also full of risk and pitfalls. Yeah, town I live in is a city of about 20,000 in a county of about 45,000 and a ton of cornfields. But it was just announced yesterday that the city I'm in, the 20,000, is getting a new employer that's going to employ about 1,200 people. And, you know, I'm thinking about the strain that's going to put on our on our housing stock. And so some of these things you're talking about that right now are kind of foreign to me because of this one employer coming in and, you know, probably bringing three, 4,000 people into town and probably some other industries as suppliers and things could potentially bring some of these housing options into our little sleepy town as well. So very interesting. Yeah, you might see it play out right in front of your eyes there. And I think it's, I think it's important for manufacturers to think about this and even some LBMs. So up, up in Alaska, there's a, it was since bought by ProBuild and, of course, now part EFS, but they still kept their name. It's called Spinard. And one of their salespeople really just specializes in working with prefabbers and um, and that whole that kind of mindset. Now, mostly in the custom, but it's even on his business card. You know, so you look at Indeed or LinkedIn, and you start you're starting to see manufacturers hiring someone just to work with build for rent developers and operators, or they're hiring uh, salespeople or training them, or you start to see this at events. Like I saw advancing prefab in Phoenix last week, where manufacturers, building product manufacturers and LBMs actually have a modular prefab business development on their business card or their title. Those are so important because that focus on if everyone's working on it, that's great, but you end up sort of getting diluted, uh, not diluted, diluted. And uh, when people have that focus, the company's investing in it, then it's easier to get those appointments and start those conversations and work with them on the R&D and the product development and then be their first top of mind person when it comes to actually uh, building the units and, and shipping them and you know material sourcing and procurement. So I think it's so important in, uh, that, and I'm grateful that the industry has seen this as important where you actually are seeing these titles and these segments inside the companies where they're investing in this with headcount and other resources. Very good. So kind of switching gears here, one of your recent podcasts had a topic that we also touched on not too long ago. Uh, we had a, a couple of guests, Crystal Ager and Catherine Prosif, uh, who are both with Monarch Weather Consulting, but they're two of the leading authorities on weather change uh, in the country right now. And we talked about changing weather patterns and how that's impacting the need for more resilient construction. 
Yeah, I I think it goes beyond just the weather change that's kind of necessitating that need for resilient construction to the fact that we simply understand building science better and uh, have better ways to build at this point and are constantly learning and better ways to test. Kind of curious, is, is this something you're starting to see a lot of manufacturers and also builders and developers uh, pay attention to more resilient housing? This is a question that should be asked right now. That's a really important question to ask right now. And it's timely. People say, oh, it's, you know, it's late. The construction industry is laggard. I've seen fascinating people do fascinating things in the industry. And there's a lot of there's a lot of development and understanding in the building sciences in this industry, uh, probably more than we even realize. And people like Matt Reisinger and Mark Willie and Dave Cooper have done a lot to kind of raise awareness. That I, love, I love their Dave Cooper and Mark Willie show on Fridays, BS Fridays, about building science. And they cover a lot of topics, but it comes down to this. It almost always comes down to the wallet. And the wallet is the motivator. People don't wake up in the morning and say, look in the mirror and say to themselves, you know, I'm going to ruin the planet today. Everyone in this industry that I've met has good intentions when they go out, but then the nuances of the industry just tend to hammer you and beat you down. But what we're starting to see this resilience and hardening of the structure, both post-construction and before construction and material selection being more and increasingly important part of the story. And it kind of build for rent comes into this too because and multifamily because their insurance rates have a lot to do with this. Those keep going up. A couple of years ago, Moody's acquired 427, which is a climate research firm, and they do some really quality work, probably not unlike your your guests do. And those reports go to BlackRock. They they go to these big REITs and they go to the insurance companies mostly. And the insurance companies go, okay, guys, we're not doing this anymore. Okay. And so your rates are going to be this, or we're not even going to offer you coverage for that. You're going to have to self-insure that, that scope. Well, folks aren't going to do that. They're going to make changes in the material. They're going to make changes in the wall assembly, in the uh, mechanical systems, whatever they need to do. Because when you underwrite these deals right now, for multifamily and build front especially, or, or you're looking at you know taking down a big land deal and you're trying to figure out what you're going to sell, what product you're going to build, these things come into play now. And insurance commissioners of the states, attorney generals, they're very involved in figuring out how to harden and make these things more resilient. And the Department of Energy helps a lot with that. So you take all this data and this mindset, and now you get money involved and you get a regulatory pressure. Now you start to see movement. It's not that people didn't want to do it before, but there was just no financial incentive to do it. And, it's, and, and it just didn't make sense, or they just wouldn't build the project you know, because they could, they couldn't do it. So when manufacturers are working with builders, they should understand and back to that tactical empathy, what the builders and the underwriters are really up against when they see, see insurance increases for projects that is going to 14 to 30% a year or quarter because of the risk that's factored in. And the insurance companies go, they don't go, oh, we're going to hold it for three years while you put this together. No. So they're, they're factoring in these increases at a certain point. It just doesn't pencil anymore. So are they going to sell the land or are they going to change the product? Well, they're going to change the product, but now they need help figuring out what product they should be using. Why should they be using it? How does it dollarize into, the, into their metrics and their figures? Manufacturers need to understand that more than ever now. And uh, I am seeing 
folks have these conversations. And I love it because it's exactly the right conversation to have and understand. I'm curious, what are your thoughts as far as energy efficiency and also solar and how are how do you see that playing out? Because for the builder or developer, maybe there isn't so much of financial incentive. Now, in a build-for-rent situation, there certainly would be. But I'm just kind of curious, where do you see the incentives for energy efficiency and solar coming from to make people make those decisions? Right. Well, we're not seeing any more energy coming to the grid of any scale over the next few years. Uh, but more homes are becoming fully electrified instead of natural gas. And then you have uh, electric vehicles. You know, you can see that the market share of that against combustion engine uh, vehicles just, of course, is going up month by month at this point. So you have all this increased demand on the electric grid, but no supply. Okay, so now what do you do? You can make a more efficient grid. Okay, that's happening. You can see that in Texas. They realized they had a problem with that storm, so they're making a more efficient grid. That's oversimplification. That's the extent of my knowledge about it, too. But when you think about these these communities of, say, build for rent, and in the amenitization, you have, of course, you need a lot of times you have 200 of them together. You need a clubhouse. You need an office. You need a maintenance person there. Uh, you need you have different parking things that come into play and so forth. Uh, a pool, maybe all these different things. Part of that amenization and that people are more uh, the the end users more in touch with now too. So you have more understanding at the developer builder level. At, at the same time, the end user is becoming more and more sophisticated and understanding it too. Is okay. We need energy storage. We need solar. We need solar thermal. We need geothermal. Whatever is right for that project, we should be at least considering it. Can we underwrite with that in mind? Considering we're, you know, built for rent, we're paying for probably 30% of the power with all the street lamps and the clubhouse and all those things. Can we develop a property that considers these things? There are some, some rebates. Could we maybe get some help from the city in terms of offsetting some of these costs over time? Because the energy has to come from somewhere and it's not nothing, the cost to add solar and some of these other elements to a project, but it is definitely more under consideration now and more real of a conversation by builders you never thought of would, would have gotten involved with these products and strategies 10 years ago. Well, it's now part of the conversation. And so d- different things have come up, like how do we handle this with a roof? You know, if we're going to do this, can we do solar on sidewall? You know, different things like that, that people are maybe more attuned to or accepting of as an end user. At the same time, the developer builder is more attuned to and accepting of adopting it as a as a product kit for their development. So I think that it's a good timing for it. There are other pieces that come into consideration for the building materials too, you know. And uh, so, for instance, do you have to sprinkler these properties? Can it go like mostly off grid? Are there things that can happen to make these more resilient? And then, of course, the insurance companies love that sort of stuff too. So. I think there's, there are a bunch of moving parts. It's very exciting because uh, it's gone from being sort of a retrofit type conversation to new construction type conversation and not just in California, Arizona, Florida. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. So this morning, the uh, Dayton Daily News, which is our local big city newspaper, uh, headline article was to expect energy bills to potentially skyrocket this summer. I mean, they were saying as soon as June for folks who are not on some sort of contracted rate, um, they could see their energy bills potentially as much as doubling, uh, which was just incredibly eye-opening to see that. So. Yeah, you could probably see apparel purchases go up uh, because people are going to – a friend of ours, she, uh, her and her husband keep the house at like 55, and they're very diligent over the years about that. We always thought it was hilarious. You walk in the house, they would give us a blanket. We're going to hang out and visit and have drinks, and and we're like, okay, it's freezing in here. Well, the, you know, you may see, have to see more people do that because you have to get the energy from somewhere to go fully electrified for vehicles, even industrial the industrial complex and transportation logistics more electrified than ever. And then the whole home, as opposed to using natural gas and propane. So as you said, there's a lot to consider in terms of supply and demand. They're going to get some of it from raising prices. So people, you know, are watching their checkbooks more, and then they're going to get some of it from investment. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and I, I lived through the 1970s energy crisis. That thermostat in the winter was down at 55 at night and no higher than 62 during the day. So uh, you adapted, <laughs> but you're right. Right. And there was a lot of energy, uh, not, not nearly as much as it should have been probably, but now, now that we look back, but there was a lot of investment in energy supply at that point. And, and uh, whether it was old school or nuclear or whatever, there was a lot at that time to address that. And then you, when times like this happen, you, you tend to see more investment innovation and getting more efficient, just like we see with construction technology. So another area where you're, you know, respected and people often go to you is something called mass timber, which I had never even heard about before I read about you writing about it. So um, I looked it up and kind of understood it. But uh, tell us what mass timber is. I can't be the only one uh, who's not familiar with it. You're not. It really is. It's much more prolific or prevalent, I should say, in Europe and parts of Asia even in uh, Brazil, there are some sizable uh, mass timber projects, more in Canada. And now in the U.S., you usually see that progress that way, like Northern Europe, parts of Asia. Then it goes to Canada, Australia, and then into the United States and then into South America. It's usually how you see building technology progress. And, and so you could look back 20 or 30 years, you could see that's where kind of the start. But you go, if, if we think back, most people know what a glue lamb is. A glue lamb beam, it looks like solid sawn lumber, but it's laid up pieces of, of basically two by material, two by four, two by six, two by eight. And um, it's laid up in finger joint and layers, and it just makes for a much stronger, stable beam that you can design for the actual project. And they're very readily available. Well, there were some catalysts that, that brought that about. In the 50s, you had resin innovation that basically made a a weather resistant or water resistant resin so that these beams that are out in the weather during construction that they didn't fall apart you had basically uh, span tables universal span tables so anyone in a lumberyard could sell a glue lamb beam and then you had basically that matriculated out of europe into the united states from the commercial world proof of concept got what uh very ubiquitous in the commercial construction world then glue lambs engineered wood products in, I mean, they're probably a third in market share of total cubic feet of wood volume in single family. So 
you, you, you see the progression, okay? So everyone's familiar with those glue-am beams. And so let's take that glue-am beam that's a vertical rectangle when you look at it from an end view and then just turn it on the side. So if you turn it on the side and then you imagine these panels that are maybe 8 to 12 feet wide, 6 inches thick, 30 feet long, and they're flat as a floor or they're sloped as a roof or they're on edge like a normal beam except for instead of being a beam they're eight foot tall or nine foot or ten foot tall wall they're just solid lumber i say solid i mean it's laid up like a glue am it's it's uh one layer of two by sixes or two by fours going one direction for cross laminated timber a layer of glue adhesive and then and then wood that's going oriented the opposite direction is kind of alternating that way. And there are other ones like dowel laminated, nail laminated timbers. So these are diff- all under the mass timber. And, and technically, the glue lamb beams that we're all used to are technically a mass timber. So we're just saying like taking that small profile of a beam and making it large format for floor and wall and roof panels. It's essentially the same concept. You can see an example of a simplification of this uh, with Chase Banks. So about a third of all new Chase Banks going in uh, for the retail walk-in locations, they have a mass timber roof. Well, what is it? It's a four foot wide by 60 feet or 40 foot long by six inch deep beam, you know, but it's turned, instead of being vertical, it's turned on its edge for a sloped roof or on, on it's turned flat for a sloped roof. And then you have this just beautiful wood grain. When you look up, you're in the bank, you're kind of like anxious about what's your balances. And, and their, their feeling is that people, it calms people down in the bank in the, when they go into the bank. And if you've ever been in an all wood building, you're just very calming. But the other part of it that's great is cement. Often that's what it's displacing, especially in commercial construction for the floors and the walls and the roof, it, it uses a lot of, there's a lot of embodied energy. It's, it's a major carbon footprint issue, cement is, okay? It's all durable, great, but it's a problem. So uh, whereas trees, before they're milled, before they're harvested and milled, they uh, take in carbon dioxide. We all know that from school. They take in carbon dioxide that's breathed out or in the atmosphere, and then they produce oxygen. And then they store that carbon dioxide. So it's basically, they call it sequestered in that wood. You harvest that wood, you saw it, you put it in a building, you, now you have a new tree growing that's going to do the same thing as opposed to concrete and cement that use a lot of energy to make. Ready-mix cement, carpet, and tile are three of the worst for carbon footprint and building materials. Um, so two of those items are very grounded in uh, high kiln-fired products. So you take an that all off the table and you're at you're doing it in a wood so it's kind of a double win because you're taking cement off the table and you're taking something that sequesters the carbon dioxide and um so that's why you see it becoming more and more prevalent from an esg standpoint it's beautiful people love it it's very spendy compared to concrete construction um we see those costs coming down over time but um, eventually in order for it to become really big it needs to be in the residential space. That's how everything needs to go to single-family residential before it can be really considered a mass market adopted product. So it's already starting to happen a little bit in Europe, um, but it's going to be several years before we see a lot of it in single-family here. But at least people should be aware of it. And how building material companies can be aware of it is, okay, what does this mean? Is this displacing my product? How can I make something that would help 
this product? How can I work on connectors or connections or, or design elements? Or what does this mean for my cladding? Is there some way that I can sort of augment that uh, for the project with my product so that I'm not just on the outside looking in wondering where my market share went? Wow. Very well. Thank you very much for that explanation. Makes a uh makes sense to me now and I'm going to continue to look for it. I hope that helped. <laughs> it did. <laughs> or didn't make it more complicated. Nope, nope. Helped great deal. Thank you. So a lot of our audience members, we find our younger folks getting started in the construction industry. And what we like to do is kind of keep them on the cutting edge, bring them new information. Any advice for them as far as things or people they should be paying attention to, or maybe even new areas of construction that you think are, are going to be become a bigger thing in the future? To me, there are kind of three entrance points that are, that are pretty big, and they're kind of those low barrier to entry points to the industry. And there's the counter salesperson at a lumberyard. I kind of see that as a kind of a pivotal and key role in the building industry. There is the... Uh, the initial kind of job of a lot of building product manufacturers is is someone that calls on box stores or they're they're calling on lumber yards before they start talking to architects and builders a lot of times. And then there's the entrant into the builder space. You know, they're starting out as maybe a, a project engineer or if they didn't uh, go to college for any specific role, they might even start as a laborer and they're looking at like, what's my, you know, what am I doing here? And um, I think that that, a couple things that helped me when I first started in the industry. Uh, one thing that helped me a lot was Pro Sales Magazine and the articles that that John and Bill and everyone twenty five or thirty years ago were writing in there. You know about estimating and sales skills, and and then understanding, really understanding the the building product channel. You know books like what what Mark Mitchell wrote about building building materials channel marketing. Those things are all I feel like still timeless in terms of how people can get started and then grow their knowledge and connections and events, you know, they're not going away. Those are always good. But one thing I think that is interesting and probably has legs that a lot of you as bringing younger people into the industry and maybe even making it more interesting to them. I'll give you an example. I went to, this is probably 10 years ago. I was at Gensler office in San Francisco and it was a, it was a, a big presentation. It was like the biggest CEU presentation I've ever done. And I walk into one of the little offices and there are a bunch of Legos and there's Minecraft on the screen and these architects and designers, a couple of gals and a couple of guys and, and some people just watching them like play Minecraft, you know, and, <laughs> and there's sort of the gamification of design and construction and engineering. And uh, that's, that hasn't changed, you know? So th- this is very, very, cool thing for manufacturers and, and the industry to sort of think about um, as we're starting to connect. We see this connection of, okay, we know architects and engineers love that. You know, why don't, why don't lumber and building product manufacturers have those sort of like rooms in their places? Because they're, they're talking to the same people. And then you see the other end of the spectrum where you have Lego and Ikea actually getting involved in construction in the UK. Ikea did a, a modular joint venture to provide housing where they basically have built furniture. You know, they have, everyone knows what Ikea is. So you start to see this, okay, here's the younger group. Here's some of the technology that they're getting involved in the gamification. You even have like the metaverse and, and decentral land where people are buying land and building homes in the metaverse and stuff like that. Those are not nothing. 
those should definitely be on the radar. And then you have uh, people in the industry. Then you have um, these sort of uh, legacy companies getting involved in construction. You know, Lego probably should have been doing that 30 years ago, but now they're starting to be like, okay, how can we get more involved in this space and help young people get more involved in this space? And none of these people are talking to each other right now, but the hub of that could be the building materials, the big LBMs, and the building product manufacturers. And then what makes that even more interesting is some of these big SaaS company acquisitions by like Builders First Source and other companies to, to really try and integrate all the technological, the, the tech pieces, the software, the SaaS into their industry for estimating and, uh, and design and to kind of design assist type things. So they could really attract more young people by highlighting those things and then getting involved in some of these kind of like maybe wacky ideas like, oh, wow, you know, should we have someone that understands tokenization of building materials and, and, and architecture, engineering and construction in the metaverse? Should we have people that understand that so that when young people come to the industry, we can tie that together like this, this interest to actual buildings and physical products and what that, what that really means. And there's more and more, investment into this space than anything of uh, the kind of the uh, blockchain and the young people love that so why not make that easier to make the connection and how what that means to the building industry so that they can think about well maybe i have a career and i can tie this interest that i have into this real thing i could drive by one day and show my kids Good stuff. One of our recent guests was Travis Foss with uh, Helm Group, Helm Mechanical. And, uh, you know, Travis was hired by their company simply to go out and develop the tech that their company uses. And, you know, certainly as a part of that, they're going to be more attractive to uh, a certain group of of workers as well. So uh, good stuff. Yeah. You look around a job site, like if you're a young person, coming out of school or you're just like goofing off on the weekend going for a drive and you see this beautiful job site and you're kind of like, Oh wow. I remember seeing that on social media or on, you know, that looks sort of like something I saw when I had my AR goggles on one time. If they see a messy job site or they just, you know, they just see no diversity on the job site or something like that, they're just going to keep driving. But if they see something that correlates to something they've seen digitally, then that, that starts to make a connection. And when you have people dedicated, like you were just describing, to the tech piece of deployment and evaluation and integration in the company, they should be thinking about that from a recruiting and retention standpoint. Sure. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, we're really getting close to the end of our time here, and I appreciate all of your time, Tim. Before we close, I do want to ask you if you'd be willing to participate in our rapid-fire questions. So this is seven questions. Some may be a little silly. Some are more serious. Um, all you got to do is give us a quick answer. You got it. Fantastic. We will alternate. I'll let Seth go first. All right. First question. If you could trade places with anyone in the world, who would it be? I think I would trade places with whoever's at the head of Lego, and then I would just move way faster on getting involved in construction and teaching young people. That is fascinating. Question number two, your favorite meal. Favorite meal is, well, we live in Mexico now, and I love tacos, uh, but one of my favorite meals there is a big Italian dish. I wouldn't even remember the name of it. My wife always orders it. 
and they nail it. Like it is so good. And it has this bit, this beautiful bolognese sauce. And then this bread is so addictive. I can only allow them to deliver one piece because I'll eat a whole loaf myself. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think the key to that is uh, that whenever you're eating with people, that's, that's one of my favorite meals is when when eating with a bunch of people. Good answer. Question number three, do you play a musical instrument? Well, I tried to learn guitar. I like to sort of ad lib with piano and harmonica, but my main instrument, it, uh, whether it's painful to hear or not, is I, I do love to sing, especially when we're having big karaoke parties. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, what is one of your best childhood memories? Always camping. So we, yeah, we didn't, like a lot of people, you didn't, didn't grow up with much, but we didn't really know it until so we got to high school. And so camping was huge. And then my dad would always bring me to this place in Bellingham, the six kids who so would bring all of us, so give my mom a break. And we went to a place called um, Hardware Sales in Bellingham and just, just awesome, fascinating stuff there. So I gave you two there. Sorry. Have you ever been told you look like someone famous? And if so, who? I usually get either Jack Black or Jack Johnson. I can see that. I can see that. Good stuff. Uh, bucket list vacation. Iceland. I mean, we've already been there. So I guess since we've already been there, I, I would have to say now Scotland. I'd love to take that. There's, I forget what it's called. There's a train you can take that goes to a bunch of the distilleries and just try all the different scotches. And, and then they even have a distillery on the train. I've only heard tell of this from friends that have gone. And I'd love to do that. We have some friends. They, they were in Scotland, right, to go stag hunting, except from the pictures. I'm pretty sure they were scotch hunting most of the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And they were very yeah, successful. Yeah, they were very successful. Yeah, successful. Probably pictures. cheaper than going stag hunting. <laughs> right. All right. Last rapid fire question. Who is the friend in your life that you have had the longest? Probably my friends uh, Rob and Amber in Bellingham. They're just like, you know, we treasure people like that because they're so supportive no matter what. I've made some stupid mistakes. We've had lows and highs in life, and they're just always there. Well, thank you again. Been a real pleasure and uh, enjoyed this a great deal. Been very informative. Is there anything we haven't covered today that you are hoping to cover? One thing that I think we should talk about more or should be talked about more is the connection between, you know, we talk a lot about women in construction and it it still is a fringe conversation. And I I really feel like that and along with that, you know, the labor shortage, bringing that perspective into the industry is super important and connected to that is, uh, you know, we have these refugees crises, you know, every 10 to 15 to 20 years, they can be a catalyst for immigration that could bring workers into the industry should manufacturers be translating their their materials into Ukrainian or Russian more than they do now or something like that? And then there's a huge amount of folks on tribal lands that want to work, especially if it's an industry that can go, that can be built in Indian country and uh, like a factory or a mill or something like that. There's a lot of untapped resource there. So those are all related to labor. Wow. Those are all great topics though. Yeah, fantastic. We'll have to keep those in mind for future episodes, too. Well, thank you again so much. Um, Tim, if folks want to get in touch with you, how can they most easily do that? Uh, Most folks just send me a note on LinkedIn. 
and I try to respond the same day when I see that. And uh, or they can text or call me at four two five four nine two zero nine seven three. I get a lot of people just texting me out of the blue, um, so I'm happy to respond on those and connect and help any way I can. Great. Well, thank you. And just as a mention for everybody, of course, we'll have this in the show notes, but uh, Tim's last name is Sims, but it's spelled S-E-I-M-S. So that's how you'll find him on LinkedIn. Why would we want it to be simple, right? That's right. Well, <laughs> and you, you got to you gotta love the uh, rhyming of Tim Sims. That's fantastic. Right. Good stuff. Well, thank you again so much for your time today, Tim. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation and for all you're doing to make this industry I love better. Well, and thank you to our audience for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with Tim Sims, building industry extraordinaire, I'm going to call him. Uh, And he's also working as a uh, consultant, uh, working with building products manufacturers and also co-host of Building Perspectives podcast. Please watch for future episodes of our podcast. We have more great guests coming up. And don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Um, Until the next time, change the world for someone. Make them smile. Encourage them. uh, Very powerful things that we can do to change the world. God bless. Take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off. Until the next episode of Construction Disruption.